everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Michael Zuber. Michael Zuber was a previous guest who lives in the Bay Area but invests in Fresno, California. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the changes that will happen in 2021 due to the political environment that we have and how real estate investors should be investing in properties today. So if you're interested in learning how to start investing in real estate out of your local area and how you should be thinking about investing in properties in the future, then you definitely need to listen to this episode. This episode is sponsored by Conventus Lending. Conventus is a hard money lender based in San Francisco that can lend across the nation. So whether you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects or for a long-term rental loan for your rental properties, feel free to contact me and schedule a call. And now, on to the show. Michael, thank you again so much for being on our show. For those of our listeners who haven't heard of you yet, do you want to give a quick introduction to who you are and tell us what you do? Sure. My name is uh, Michael Zuber. Obviously, I am the author and creator of a, a brand called One Rental at a Time. Started it as an Amazon book, has morphed into a YouTube channel, Instagram, and the like. I'm basically a full-time employee who 20 years ago read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and started buying single-family home rentals. And you know the story ends pretty well in, in financial freedom. So uh, that's, that's kind of who I am. That's exciting. And do you want to tell us a quick update on what you've been up to since the last time we spoke, which was, I think, right when coronavirus first hit? Yeah. So one of the, so yeah, the story goes, right, coming into 2020, you have big plans, right? We were coming off 2019, which was a great year. Our rental portfolio grew. We'd done 24, 25 flips. The book was selling well. YouTube growth was great. And then Rona hit, right? The health crisis. And the first thing we did is we had to, we were like many people and had to go, hey, what, what's going on? This is our first pandemic, right? I've never invested through a pandemic. I've got 20 years, but first pandemic. So the first thing we did is we evaluated our tenant base, which was a couple, almost a couple hundred. And we identified 10 at-risk tenants, right? They had the, the employment, you know, was in retail or restaurants. And we thought, you know, given the rents that, that we could be in problems. So we proactively reached out. Thankfully, you know, now almost 12 months later, rent collections have been fine. We have a couple people playing games. We're down about 60K portfolio wide, which really, you know, it hurts, no doubt, but is not anything like I expected. I expected it to be much worse. We slowed down flipping, but that's not for want of trying. I made 250 offers last year trying to get stuff out of the MLS. Nothing worked. And again, it's because of lack of supply. You know, that's the thing for 2020 was lack of supply across the country. And, you know, other than that, it's been, you know, helping students. We've gone from, I don't know what it was a year ago, maybe 5,000 subscribers to 15. My course now is over a thousand people strong. You know, people like the one rental at a time story. They like the conservative nature. It's something you can use around the world. And then last thing to say, I created a private group for my students, which far exceeded my expectations. I created it simply as a repository for my you know, frequently asked questions, but it's morphed into a community of positive people looking to help each other network, speak the same language. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. That's crazy. It's not like you had a very busy year. So let's go into it a little bit more. When you said that right now you, I guess, lost, I guess, 60,000 portfolio wide, is that just means that you didn't make as much as you thought the year before? No, I have. So part, part of being a landlord is your promised via contracts rent collection. We obviously have eviction moratoriums going on, CDC, Governor Newsom, all those. So I have a delinquency of $60,000, which means rent that should have been paid hasn't. Those range from perfectly valid, they've done nothing wrong to people playing games. 
right? They've looked at this crisis. They've seen the rent strike things in New York and San Francisco, and they want to get some of their own. We have worked with tenants and many of the tenants we've given rent credits to, because again, this is our first health crisis. It's their first health crisis. And for the tenants that have been with us for a while and are great tenants, we've cut rents in half. We've gone credits. But there are, ten- are people who see every crisis as a way to take advantage of what's going on. And I have a few of those. And that's just unfortunate. So yeah, 60000 in delinquent rent. And when it comes to the eviction process, again, because of the whole moratoriums, what kind of challenges have you faced and what does that really entail? Really two things. First and foremost, evictions essentially stopped for everything in California for about six months. Now, recently, the CDC order, there's been, you basically can evict for cause now. All right, there was a time, even if I had a drug dealer in a property that the sheriff wouldn't go visit and wouldn't lock him out, the courts were even, I mean, you couldn't even go to a, a, the courts to argue an eviction. There was a time in California that was true. Now, thankfully, you can evict for cause. It's still very slow going. We used to be a 60-day average. It's much more like 90 days now. You know, states like Texas, where you get them out in 10 days, we can't. It's more like 90 days. You can't evict for rent cause, assuming the tenant can prove it via stipulation under perjury and all of that stuff. But yeah, so it's, it's gone from 60 days to 90 days and lots of reasons why we can't. And if you can hear my puppy whining, folks, that's him. He's not feeling well. He's 15 and a half. So I'm trying to keep him quiet, but I'm afraid this microphone might be picking him up. So I apologize. <laughs> It's okay. He's very cute. Thank you. Sorry. You know, I actually haven't evicted someone. Luckily, I haven't had anyone that had to evict, but what is the entire eviction process and why does it take 90 days? Well, it shouldn't. It does. (laughs) Uh, First off. So essentially what happens in in a nutshell, and I actually have an interview with an attorney uh, on my channel. You can look up. He's far better at it than me. As somebody on the outside, because again, folks, I pay a property manager to deal with. I don't do any of that stuff other than approve an eviction. So basically a tenant fails to pay. The first thing happens is you post a notice to pay. I think it used to be called a three-day notice. I think in today's environment in California, it's 14 days, I think. And then let's just assume the tenant hasn't filed paperwork or whatever. That just delays the process. And then what happens is you go to court, right? The date is scheduled. It's usually out. The court date is really the long pole. That's out 30 or 45 days. Uh, Assuming that happens and they don't prove they have paid or there wasn't a documentation issue. Then a sheriff lockout happens, you know, weeks later. And it's just in the more evictions that happen, the longer it takes because really that court date is the long pole in the process. And you know, once this CDC moratorium ends, which not right now is to schedule for the end of January, I believe, we'll see what happens. I think it gets extended again, frankly, but you know, we'll see. It's a long process for sure. Yeah. I mean, as of this recording, things are still pretty much shut down here in the Bay Area. Like we still can't go to restaurants, even for outdoor yeah. dining. Gyms are closed. Apparently, you know, things are at all time high still. So I, I don't see it uh, opening up anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And transitioning to you not being able to find deals in Fresno, because I remember when we spoke last time, you were mm-hmm. one of the key advocates of always looking on the MLS, like every single day yeah. you are looking and you're looking for deals, but mm-hmm. there are no deals to be found. Why do you think that's the case? First and foremost, I'm still that advocate. I still look every day. I made 250 offers last year on MLS based deals. So I'm still a strong believer, but for why there's no inventory, uh, I believe pretty strongly that what we lacked this year was what I call the move up buyer, right? The move up buyer is someone who bought their house five or 10 years ago. They have plenty of equity and they're now looking to that bigger house or nicer area. That person, once the Rona hit, basically decided, I don't want anybody coming to my house. 
I will instead go to Home Depot or Lowe's, buy some paint, and I'll paint my kid's bedroom. I'll add a new shelf. I'll update my home. That's what happened in 2020. A lot of move up buyers just decided to stay put. I believe that reversed is hardcore in 2021. And that's going to make the next spring selling season pretty fantastic in Fresno because I think inventory has to go up. We're sitting at one month supply, which in my 20 years, I have never seen. You know, I thought 2006 was bad when we were at 2.2 months supply and we've blown that out of the water. So it's really lack of move up buyers because there are two transactions, right? They have to sell and they have to buy. They've just not in the process today. So what do you mean by like, you're going to have a fantastic 2021 season? Like they're ready to sell now in 2021? Well, I think what's going to happen, yeah, is they're going to realize they even have more equity because Fresno's seen a 15% increase. They're going to realize that nice homes are out there. You know, the builders are building again. They're going to want to trade up, right? They're going to be bored. We see unbelievable savings rates, lots of dry powder, relatively cheap interest rates. And consumers over my 20 years of watching them, they can save for a little while, right? We have record savings rate, record money market account. They don't save for a long time. So they're going to come out guns a-blazing once they feel more safe. And one of the things they're going to do is they're going to trade up. That's my belief. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, one of my friends was saying that because of how Prop 19 passed this past November and how it's going to go into effect in April, that's probably like another reason why we're going to see more inventory coming out in April for when things really uh, change. Yeah, I think that will be a very Bay Area focus. I don't think that hurts. I don't think that helps Fresno. It's a relatively affordable market. But yeah, it, the Bay Area, Palo Alto, Mountain View, Cupertino, Prop 19 will definitely increase listings here, right? The Bay mm-hmm. in LA probably too. Yeah. Do you ever think like there are some, like you mentioned that there's a lot of growth in Fresno and a lack of supply. Mm-hmm. Do you think like other investors are also kind of jumping into the Fresno market because of your YouTube channel and because of your book? Oh, no question. Uh, And I'm okay with that. I want goodness for everyone. I have my pile. I'm definitely one for, I'm not a scarcity mindset. I'm abundance. I like, and I encourage it, frankly. I have a whole office building right there on Van Ness where people can go and meet wholesalers and real estate agents and brokers and general contractors and the like. So yeah, I encourage it. Come on. If you can get four rental properties in Fresno because of me, I'll be wildly happy for you. That's awesome. And let's talk about the hub. I mean, I remember when we went on a little tour two years ago, you were kind of like still in construction and you were renting it out. Yeah. Like, how's that been? And, you know, especially with COVID and whatnot. It's now full. We went through, you know, lots of people signed up initially. I think we turned over about half the tenants. They were either too small or they outgrew it. And now we have people in there that I know, trust, respect. We have agents, contractors, wholesalers. It's the right collection of people that I wanted and they're serving their need. I do co-marketing with them now. I just sent out you know, mailers with the general contractor out to all out-of-state owners, right? Just introducing the hub and introducing the contractor, not really asking for anything. It will eventually become something I'm really known for because again, it allows me to send people who follow me from LA or the Bay Area, just go to the hub. I don't need to go with you, right? There's people there I trust. They'll take you around. And again, they don't report to me. They're not in the LLCs or entities of mine. They're just people I know and respect that I wanted to put in one space and uh, it's working. Those folks have done more deals together uh, than they would have done separately. And mm-hmm. I'm very proud of what's happened. I wish it was bigger, but 2020 kind of got in the way. I'm very encouraged by what's coming in 2021. It seems cool because you have your little ecosystem where you can say, yeah, everything's here in one spot. I trust these guys. Go ahead and use them as a resource. Yeah. In worst case, just go talk to them, right? One thing I've made sure is everybody there is a go-giver. So you don't have to use them. But you know, if you want to talk to a general contractor in Fresno, I got one. You want to go talk to a couple of agents? I got them. And again, the agents work at different brokerages. I don't have a brokerage. I have no interest in having employees. 
but I have the people there I know, trust and respect and, you know, call them. Worst case, just have a conversation. They all will have a conversation with you and then um, make your own decisions from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know how you're very like Fresno focused. Do you ever mm-hmm. consider buying somewhere else or, you know, branching out something? I get asked that all the time. I mean, in theory, I probably should, but in fairness, I enjoy my life. I don't want to increase risk. I'm frankly lazy right? I don't want to build another team. The hardest thing about learning a city is not learning. I talked about in the book, right? One rental at a time is I fired the first five property managers. I don't want to go through that again. It was rough. And now that I don't have a job, it just means I would probably be in that city more. And I just don't want to do that. I don't want to go. I hate airplanes. I don't want to get on a plane and fly to Texas or St. Louis or, you know, Birmingham, Alabama. I'm good. And that's probably short-sighted, it's not diversified, but you know, I'm just okay with that, I guess. But I think you're also at a point where you don't really need the money, right? Like no, everyone, not. I mean, like everyone needs, or everyone could use more, but you know, at some point you don't need it, right? Like, I, I really, I mean, one thing I, I am is I, I'm not really that flashy. I don't need lots of stuff. We've covered our nut and then some. So I'm cool, right? What do I do all day? I wake up at six. I read about financial markets. I produce, you know, an hour of content for YouTube. I go work out. Then Olivia and I have lunch. You know, then we may go for a walk. Then we watch a little TV and I'm going to sleep. I mean, that's a pretty good day for me. I don't need more headaches. I don't need more deals. I'll take them if they come across. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, I'm close to signing two more deals now, but I don't have to do, I don't have to do anything at this point. As long as I can keep my spending where it's at. That's the key. And I love the dedication to your YouTube content. I mean, you're doing it every single day and you're creating great stuff. How do you come up with all the new topics to talk about on a consistent basis? Well, the beauty is what I do for the daily financial news, which is a seven day show, which I've done for almost 500 days in a row now, thanks to Gary V and Nipsey Hussle for the inspiration. But I had been doing that for nearly 20 years. I get up markedly early. I'm a morning person. Olivia's a night person. So I've been getting up without an alarm clock at six or earlier for 10 years at least. And I just read the financial markets and enjoy my coffee. That's my morning routine. So what I've done for the last 500 days is I've just taken a list of what I've read. And then I talk to a camera. I do it live, no editing. I'm not technical. I just hit go live, put in a heading and go. I don't trick the YouTube algorithm. I don't put in keywords, none of that nonsense. I don't know any of that stuff. You know, So for me, the only thing I've added is I talk to a camera for 12 minutes because I would have done it anyway. So that's really, really cool. And then Monday through Friday, something I've done is I have five multimillionaires from across the country that are giving me an hour of time to help out. And each of those hour discussions turns into three videos. Because what I do now is instead of doing one long video, I just hit three topics. And then I let you watch the ones you want. You don't want to talk. You don't want that one? Great. Don't watch it. You want this one? Great. Watch it. And uh, what we do for all of those is I talk to them for about 60 seconds. And I say, what are the topics of the day? And we just roll. So none of my stuff is scripted. It's all live. I haven't edited a video ever. And I won't because if that's what it takes to be successful on YouTube, I will stop. I just, I don't have the time. I don't need to do it. This is fun for me, helping people, inspiring people, building confidence, giving back. It's an amazing feeling. Right. Yeah. It's definitely a different game. And what kind of like financial news sources are you looking at? I'll read anything that comes across my desk. So I usually start with CNBC. That's where I'll start. But then I'll go to Forbes. I'll go to Fortune. I'll go to a lot of the real estate channels, REI, something. I'll read anything that a subscriber sends me. I'll go to Yahoo Finance. I mean, I'll read anything that comes across. I do have focus. It's not like I read everything. I'm really keen on the consumer. 
because I have learned over 20 years that the consumer drives the American economy. And if you can figure out when the consumer is scared, afraid, or greedy, you can make a lot of money. So that's my number one focus. And then number two is cost of capital. I want to know where interest rates are going. Because again, in real estate, it's not about price, it's about payment. And most people don't get that. And we've been kind of spoiled the last two years where interest rates are going down. I just did an interview with a mortgage guy and, and they went up an eighth, which may not sound like a lot, but it's almost 10%, right? An eighth is 12, or maybe it's 5%. It's 12 and a half basis points. But if the mortgage was 2.5% to begin with, that's 5%. And again, with all the stimulus that we have coming, 4 or 5% of GDP, rates are probably going to go up. And you know, because I watch it, I can see it coming and make investing decisions based off that. So I guess from what you've been looking at for the past few weeks, do you have like summary that you can kind of tell our listeners today? Yeah, what I would tell you is based on what happened in Georgia, those Senate seats flipping on Thursday, which was yesterday, I fundamentally had to sit down because that surprised me. I did not expect both seats in Georgia to flip. I'm a fan of split government. We're not going to have that now, at least at the high level, right? Because now the Senate is at least 50-50. So on Thursday, once that second seat was certified, called, or whatever they call it in politics, I'm like, okay, what happens? And these are important questions because it impacts everything I do. So first off, I asked about stimulus in my head, right? First thing I said is, what are the chances of the 2K checks get done, which was a battle for three weeks? My first thought is they get done and they get done quickly. Next. What other stimulus get done quickly? I'm like, well, these freaking bailout to the states that we keep hearing about, those probably happen, right? New York, California, Illinois, just to name a few that I have seen called for. And again, folks, I'm not calling judgment. As an investor, calling judgment, letting your biases influence them, it's not helpful. I just think that given what we have set up in the Senate, the House, and the presidency, that bailout to the states is more possible today than they were on Monday. So I got to be ready for that. The other thing is, is the vaccine rollout, uh, whether again, you're going to take it or not, don't care, but it's been slower than we want. So I think they're going to throw some money at hospitals. Then I think about kids. Kids have been suffering. They're not going to school. Everything's online. It's just not the same. Kids are failing that shouldn't be failing. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm guessing they're going to throw some money at schools. So in the end, I see a trillion, trillion and a half dollars coming out quickly, like by March 1st, quickly. That's going to do lots of things. A, that's going to be 4% of GDP. That's going to be inflationary, stimulus. We're going to have a great GDP print in 2021. Roaring 20s, you know, 2.0 for sure. But there will be a hangover, right? The other thing that I think happens because of what happened on Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on what day you want to call it, I think taxes change. Now, do taxes change for wealthy? Absolutely. Do they change for big business? Probably. Do they change for mom and pop real estate investors? Maybe. Right. So these are all things I'm thinking about now. And, you know, you, you need to, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. You have to think about what sits in front of us because I believe my investing world changed on Wednesday and I have to ask different questions. That's really cool because honestly, I'm really bad at politics. I don't really care about watching the news. I have no idea what you're talking about for the whole like, <laughs> Georgia seat flipping. No idea. I only heard about how the Capitol got stormed a couple of days yeah. ago. Right. And for me, it's like, okay, what happens in Georgia? How's that going to affect me here in California? But I guess you yeah, think well, it's going to, right? Because again, you know, normally speaking, a Georgia Senate election wouldn't move the needle for you in California. However, 
when potentially, right? We don't know yet. We're all just guessing. But when the Senate flipped, that's the big deal, right? When it, when it actually technically has it flipped, it's 50-50 and now the VP gets the tie-breaking vote. But there's going to be two years until what's called the midterm elections, where in theory, it is easier to pass these democratic initiatives. For example, the 2K check, if the Senate had stayed red versus blue, very hard to get through because, again, just based on what was going on, they were worried about the budget. Now, assuming people vote across party lines, they can, in theory, get the two check out, you know, soon after inauguration. It's just the way the math works. So normally speaking, you're probably right. But again, this election, things changed. And again, normally, I don't fundamentally change my investment decisions, but you have to this time. The world changed. It shifted Wednesday. So like you said, we're probably going to have a great 2021 because we have all this extra like funds being put into these different programs, which means that everyone across the board would be a little bit better off than they were before. But then there's going to be some ramifications to that. The oh, hangover. there will be a hangover. There what do you think that looks like? Well, it's already starting and people are not seeing it coming. Again, January 6th is a big day. And what I mean by that is January 6th, 30-year mortgage rates owner-occupied went up an eighth. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that reverses a trend that was two years in the making. And interest rates on 30-year notes, the Fed can't control that, right? So these are banking institutions going, hmm, we see inflation coming. And again, the 10-year note, my number one variable to track in 2021 is a 10-year note. When I said that on January 1st, I think it was 0.91. It's 1.09 today. Again, 1% doesn't sound like a lot, but it's up almost 20%, right? All of these things are important. We have changed a decade trend. The 10-year note was going down like this on charts. I believe, fundamentally speaking, January 6th, it changed. It is now going to be on the way up to one and a half, and then two, then two and a half, then three. The question is not if, but when. And if the 10-year gets to two or the 10-year gets to three, that just means the 30-year mortgage rate is going to go from 2.75 to 5 or 6%, and that is going to slam real estate, crush it. Because again, people buy on payment and you know, a million dollar house at 2.75 is very different than a million dollar house at 6%. The payment right. is wildly different. Do the math. Right. I mean, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, we were trying to understand, I mean, because I don't know stuff about right? I was trying to understand how does, you know, the Fed interest rate, we hear that a lot. Oh, the Fed interest rates are near zero and they've Fed gone funds, up. Yep. People say that the Fed is not going to increase their interest rates. Well, it's not only people, it's the Fed. Right. The so Fed they're saying is, they're not going to increase it, but that's different well, from the 10-year interest rates, right? Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Different. Oh, totally. The Fed wants money to be cheap. It wants liquidity in the system. Frankly, it wants it because it's the buyer of a lot of this stuff. But unfortunately, they only can play on the short end. They don't really play on the long end, unless they want to come in and start buying gobs of it, maybe. But that's not where they play. They can't hold all interest rates down. They only control the federal funds rate. That's it. That's the only rate. Right. And it's today, like it was back in the recession, great recession between zero and a quarter. And it's been that way for six quarters or eight quarters or whatever it's been. The other thing is, I think the Fed is either wrong or lying. There's no chance that the federal funds rate stays low for two or three years, given the huge stimulus coming, the conspicuous consumption that is coming. We have record number of cash in bank accounts, in money market accounts. The American consumer is going to consume like never before once we have more confidence. 
And uh, that's just going to mean inflation. And the Fed will have to raise rates. They just will. Uh, I don't think they do it in 2021. So let's be clear. I think you have another year. But it's not going to be 2023 or 2024 like they're trying to make us think. It's just not. So how does that change the way that you invest? Well, I want to get cheap 30-year debt as long as possible. Um, I believe multifamily is at highest risk just given the commercial structure of way loans are done, right? You get a commercial loan today that maybe is 4% interest only on a three-year cliff and you're forced to refi in 2024. Rates aren't going to be four. They could be seven. They could be seven and a half. So I'd be very nervous about new construct, new buying new multifamily value add. All right, if you're going to do a multifamily value add in this environment, I'd be really nervous today. But that said, residential property, you get 30-year fixed money. That's all I'm buying now. That's all I'm looking at is residential properties because I think we're going to have a, a appreciation and the debt structure allows me to remove future risk because it's fixed for 30 years. So you're saying, I guess in summary, it's better to get maybe like a giant cash out refi on your primary residence if you own a property here versus even like a HELOC because HELOCs are adjustable rates. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a personal choice. But yes, I believe debt will get more expensive going forward. HELOC is variable. I did a video that comes out at four o'clock today on the California Affordability Index because again, it's what saved us in 08. And I think with rates rising, people need to pay attention. Just to be clear, I don't generally recommend taking refis out on your personal residence because I think I saw too many people lose them in 08. But yeah, I mean, if you have a free and clear investment property, dude, go get that 30-year money right now. Even if you can't find a deal, just put it in the bank because I think it will be, I mean, now don't go crazy. Maybe get a 60% LTV or something. But I think raising capital today from free and clear property is probably not a bad idea because then you'd be ready with dry powder if multifamily cracks like I think it will. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of people who come on your show who are experts in the multifamily space. Do they have any comments on? Um, no, I thoughts? have lots. Of, yeah. I would say I have a large syndicator, hundreds of millions of bucks, another investor worth probably eight to 10 million. They actually have differing views. It's kind of fun. That's why I love having these experts on. One of them is like, Hey, the, you know, the Wednesday event in Georgia doesn't affect anything. Keep going. The other one's like, Oh my God, multifamily is going to take a haircut. Cap rates are going to expand. Taxes are going to make, you know, they're going to come after 1031 exchange and come up to step bases. Watch out. Inventory is coming. So it's fun. I don't know who's right. I just know multifamily is at greater risk given the debt structure than residential. Mm-hmm. That I can say with certainty. I'm still asking myself, right? It's Friday we're recording this and the world changed for me on Wednesday. So it's all happening in real time. So I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah. I remember when we spoke a couple of years ago, you were saying something like, oh, I like single family homes. I don't like apartments. But back in 08, I loved apartments. I don't like single families. Mm-hmm. Like, what are your, what is your thoughts now? Yeah. So let's put this in context. I, again, when I share my thoughts, I do it. So when we talked last time, I was actively selling apartment buildings, right? 2019, I think we sold 50 units or 48 units, whatever it was. Because again, multifamily was collapsing. It was the cap rates are coming down. People were buying C-class properties for A-class prices. And I'm like, man, if you want to overpay, take it. And people did. And again, I got to put the money somewhere. So I moved them into houses, right? I did a 1031 exchange into 15 houses and some other stuff. So yeah, I put my money where my mouth is. Today, it's all about the debt structure. And again, I have lots of units. So not only do I know the debt structure, but the operational. Today, what is the best thing to own? Houses. What's the hardest thing to own? Apartments. Where are most of my rent challenges? Apartments. Where are my rent collections fine? Houses. Why? Because space is good. If people get in trouble in a house, they want, they'll move their sister or the brother in. They want to stay there because in this environment where you got to work from home, you got to raise your kids at home, you got to go to the gym at home, 
you don't want to be in a 600 square foot apartment. You want to have a backyard. You want to have a garage. So houses are what people want. People don't want to live in high rises. They don't want to live in urban areas. The work from home thing is real. Urban flight is real. So I believe houses have a huge wind at their back. And I think multifamily has some negatives, but that will change because again, housing is going to appreciate and eventually housing will appreciate where it's unaffordable and then apartments will be more valuable. It's just a cycle. One thing I've learned after 20 years is multifamily and single family homes don't go in the same cycle. Their waves are delayed. They're not in sync, at least in my market of Fresno, California. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, one thing that I have a challenge with is when do you know, like when to sell and also like why to sell a period? Because, you know, it's very easy to just do the whole like buy, hold forever strategy, right? Mm. And you think I'm going to hold on to it forever. But for you, it's like, no, you need to, I guess, sell oh, yeah, when the market's hot. So yeah, I call it know? dancing through raindrops. So for single family homes, it's really easy. And that video I have coming out at four o'clock today is, is perfect for California. It's called the California Affordability Index. It's what I reference in the book. Basically, the affordability index in California, it's different for every state, so go look at your state, tells me when to sell my single family homes. And basically, it, anytime affordability gets down to 20, I sell everything. Right now, it's at 47. So I have plenty of room. But let's realize the affordability index is affected by three variables, average income, average price, and average interest rate. So if income and price stay stable, but we go through a rising interest rate environment with every uptick in interest rate affordability falls. And I think we're going into an environment of rising prices and rising interest rates. So it's kind of a double whammy. So that 47 could go to 20 in 12 to 18 months. And if it does, I'm selling every house I own. It's what saved us in 08. Sold every single one and we'll do it again. Makes sense. I definitely felt that when interest rates increased, in Sunnyvale, or I guess the interest rates increased in 2018 and all my properties I had in like Sunnyvale and Santa Clara were unsellable. Yeah. <laughs> it was very painful. I remember 18, they went up like half a point or five eighths. It yeah. makes a decision, especially in Sunnyvale, right? Or the Bay or whatever you want to call it. When you have a million four, a million six, half a point is real money, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so what are some of your tips that you give to new investors on how they should be starting out? Because you started, you know, about 15, 17 years ago. Do you think things have changed since then? Nope. I believe it's fundamentally the same thing. I have a couple of phrases I want to become known for. One is called do the work. What makes me different, my superpower, whatever you want to call it, is once I find something, I could do it over and over and over again, and I don't get bored. So what I teach everybody, and it's the paramount, it's the first step in my course is focus on your market. Now, let's be clear. When I say focus on your market, I don't mean Fresno. I mean tight zip code, asset type, size. I want your first focus to be between 20 and 40 active listings. And I want you to beat that list every day for 60 or 75 days. I want you to become the best expert at three bedroom, two bath homes in the Mayfair district between 1,200 and 1,450 square feet, right? Get focused. Because once you do that, you'll learn the market. you know what an average deal is. Once you know average, you can do good and great deals. That's all I've ever done is I've made every deal good or great. And what I mean by that, I believe every, every zip code has an average return. If the average return is six, you go earn seven and eight. That's all I've ever been doing is try to earn good or great deals. And again, I've only bought out of the MLS as you kind of alluded to earlier. You don't have to buy something just because it's listed, right? You can, in most markets, offer less, not so much in 2020, but what's coming, you can. So, you know, that's what I do. Do the work. And then I also am known for learn your market. I have something on my YouTube channel called the 75 day hard challenge for real estate investors, 100% free but it's basically eight things that you have to do every day to learn your market. 
And I believe, again, the thing that I want people to take from our story, Olivia and I's story, is ordinary W-2 employees, if they do the work, they sacrifice, they don't get flashy, they can retire in time, as we're proof positive you can do that. That's awesome. Michael, thank you again so much for coming on the show. How can people find you? I think the best thing to do for me is to go to YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called One Rental at a Time. I post three to four original pieces of content every day. So go there. If you like Instagram, I'm on there as well. But yeah, One Rental at a Time YouTube is the place to be. Fantastic. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. I'll see you next time. You got it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.